All right. Hey, uh, Romans 13, Mark chapter 12. Um, we're currently in a series called Real Talk, and here's the idea. It's a biblical approach to tough conversations. Um, we're kind of looking at different topics like the gospel and fill in the blank. So we did the gospel and grief, the gospel and honor. We're going to be doing the gospel and politics today, uh, the gospel and spiritual warfare, the gospel and race, the gospel and justice. Um, our hope and our prayer is this. Um, as the Holy Spirit has, you know, wrote, written books of the Bible through different authors like Peter or Paul, they always wrote to churches or individuals or just a gathering of believers that had their own specific problems and issues. And it's kind of us saying, hey, in 2020, um, what would the Lord want to say to us as our church here in South Florida? What are those issues and topics and heart idols and heart issues that the Lord wants to bring light to and bring attention upon? So we're trying to slow down and do that. So today is the gospel and politics. And if this is your first time here ever, just please come back next week. Um, that's all I want to say. This is what you call classic lose-lose. Um, that's what it kind of feels like in some ways. I thought about calling in sick, but then I realized that's not possible. So uh, it's, it, this is one of those things, though, that I know can be touchy, but I'm excited because I really do believe the Lord can speak and move and really just reveal heart idols and really just do a lot within our community. And, and just hopefully as we engage with people who think differently, vote differently, live differently, we want to do, be a better light and example to everyone and anyone. And so we just want to do this well. So uh, let me kind of set the, the tone for this too a little bit. There's no no way in 45 minutes I'm going to answer every question ever when it comes to the Christians engaging in this political world. But I do want to give us a framework, and I do want to give us uh, the scriptures and texts that do talk about that. So this will fall short in some ways. And honestly, it's one of those things like we're praying through, does this, is this something we make longer in the future? And probably, yes. Uh, but here's the idea. Listen, if every celebrity ever, and if Cardi B can speak on politics, then listen, the church and the Bible has absolutely every right to speak on this. And so that's going to be our heart and our approach to this. Now, let me also say this. Uh, my job as just a pastor, as a shepherd, is to lead our community to faithfulness towards Jesus, to really just uh, fight, and this is your job too, to fight for unity within the body of Christ, and not uniformity, not where everyone thinks alike, votes alike, and, and everything like that, but unity. That if you're truly going to have a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church, you'll also have a, a multi-voting party church. And the point is, how do we love each other and then fight through maybe the uncomfortable, tense moments? So that's what we want to do. You know, I'm going to share my longest quote of today will be right now. Um, John Piper wrote an article, and really it's kind of to everyone, but specifically to pastors. He brings this up, and I want to read it because this is kind of the tone for us today. Here's what he said. Listen, he says, may I suggest to you pastors that in the quietness of your study, you do this. And I did this and asked you to do the same. He says, imagine that America collapses. First anarchy, then tyranny from the right or the left. Imagine that religious freedom is gone. What remains for Christians is fines, prison, exile, and martyrdom. Then ask yourself this, has my preaching been developing real radical Christians? Have you been cultivating real Christians who see the beauty and the worth of the Son of God? Have you faithfully unfolded and heralded the unsearchable riches of Christ? And are you raising up generations of those who say with Paul, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord? Have you shown them that they are sojourners and exiles and that their true citizenship is in heaven from which they await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they feel in their bones that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Or have you neglected these greatest of all realities and repeatedly diverted their attention onto the strategies of politics? Have you inadvertently created the mindset that the greatest issue in life is saving America and its earthly benefits? Or have you shown your people 
that the greatest issue is exalting Jesus with or without America? Have you shown them that the people who do the most good for the greatest number of the longest time, including America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king? You see, this is my, this is my call. This is my aim. My job as a pastor, shepherd, teacher is to go to the scriptures to remind us that, and we're going to talk about the tension of we do engage, but how do we not make it ultimate? We do engage with the government, with the political realm, but how do we not make it God? How do we not make it king? How do we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things? How do we be key people who care more about evangelizing the lost than converting people to our party? How do we genuinely be broken for those who are far from Christ? And how do we better train and equip you guys to share your faith, to make disciples, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry? The ministry is reconciling the world to Jesus Christ, not reconciling to what my political bent is. Now, we do have convictions, though. And we're going to talk through that. And those convictions we need to work out and express and search through scriptures. But no, let me just say this. This is probably one of those things, like I said in the very beginning, it's a lose-lose. My hope in, in many ways, in some ways, is to offend all of you with the gospel. Because my hope is that the gospel does bring our heart close. Like it's just creating a longing for Jesus. To say nothing in this world will satisfy. Do we want to fight for truth? Absolutely. Will we? Absolutely. But how do we not put maybe our personal way of how we would run the government, how we would do things, how do we not put that above the gospel of Jesus Christ? And so how do we fight for that? And so I want to recommend a couple things, actually, because like I said, there's no way in the next 45 minutes we're like, and then every question's answered, right, bye. It's just not going to happen. But there's a couple books that I, I read this week that were very helpful. One was called Religion and Politics, um, a kind of more of like a history of how we got to where we're at right now, uh, forward by Tim Keller, so you know it's good. Um, if, you know, mind. Uh, and the next uh, one I read that, it took about 90 minutes. It's just called Seven Questions Every Christian Needs to Ask Themselves Before They Vote. Um, and honestly, I found this very helpful by a guy named David Platt, who's a pastor in the D.C. area. And it was one of those, one of those books where I was surprised by, he just, he just, it's not a voter's guide or anything like that. It's just saying, hey, here's questions you need to ask yourself before you vote. And so we'll, we'll kind of incorporate some of that, use some of the questions, and I, I hope the Lord uses this to speak, to reveal heart idols, to reveal personal things that are not from the Lord, that maybe are personal, that might even be good things, but they're not God things. And so how do we, how do we fight for what's important? Amen? Sound good? All right, I think that's it. Bye. I love you guys. Have a great, I kind of want to end there. All right, um, <laughs> so we're going to fight for this. Uh, let me just give you really quick one, one more quote to kind of set the tone from Platt in this book. Here's what he says to Christians. He says, in a country where the church is often divided over political positions, my hope is to fuel deeper, to fuel deeper affection for Christ while fostering healthier conversations among Christians as we participate in a presidential election. Put another way, my chief concern in this book is not who wins on election day. My chief concern is infinitely more important. I'm concerned with where you stand in Christ and where we stand as the church on election day and in the days thereafter. It's the days after I'm concerned, what will the body of Christ look like? I, I think we lose credibility as a church when we overly react with brokenness and status or overly react with just happiness and excitement. And the point is, it's not wrong to go, oh, I'm happy or I'm sad. That's not the point. The point is, how do we not elevate that above our ultimate calling of making disciples of all nations? How do we fight for our convictions and better dialogue? Absolutely. But how do we not lose sight of what's primary? Amen? Amen? All right, so let's do this. We're going to read uh, Romans 13, and then we'll pray, and then we'll look at this more in depth. Romans 13, read with me. Romans chapter 13, here's what Paul writes. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, 
And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he, or the government, is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Everyone say, amen. Um, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Verse 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you sh- for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandments, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's just pray, ask the Lord into this place and to speak and guide this time. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for the example you have left us through your son, Jesus, that he, Lord, engaged but also offered us another way. We thank you, God, that you have designed structure and government, it says, for our good and for our protection. And Lord, we just thank you for that. God, we ask that you just speak to our church, our body. God, that you remove any toxic things in our lives, any contempt towards the other, any mindset, that just might fuel just bitterness and hatred. Jesus, we do also want to ask just for just holy convictions that come from you, just that we would stand for truth, that, God, we would walk in that, and that we would do our best to navigate this season and to to truly, like you, you say in your word, God, that we would do this in faith, that we would navigate through our convictions in faith, Jesus, and that we'd honor you in your name. Amen. So, you know, the first time my wife and I ever flew out here to Florida, it was actually November 4th, 2008, election day. Uh, It wasn't planned to be that way, it was just that way. So it's crazy to think, 12 years ago this week, we flew out to Florida for our very first time. And uh, so our our actual first encounter with politics in Florida, uh, it took place at a Wendy's. All right, so here's the idea. Uh, We got the airplane, it's November 4th, it's election day, Uh, we get in our rental car, we actually came to Florida to just kind of pray about, God, is this where you're calling us? Is this where you're moving us here? And so we we got out of the car, we got the airplane, we got in our car, we're driving down the freeway, we don't know where anything is, we don't know anyone, this is not even like our phones didn't have like navigation, it was just like, it was 2008, man. So we get off on the the freeway, we get off on uh, Cypress Creek Road, and we're going towards our hotel, and there's a Wendy's there. We're like, oh my gosh, the Wendy's, the food, we're so hungry, we pulled over. And so we're at the drive-thru window, and as we're sitting there, the guy opens up the window, he hands us our food, and he says, you know, it is election day, 2008. He goes, so, who'd y'all vote for? And I don't, I don't, I've like never been asked by that by a random person, like let alone a Wendy's drive-thru attendant. I don't know, I just, I was like so thrown off. I was like, uh, I just like froze. And then, you know, he said to, to us, and I quote, ah, forget it, you're just a bunch of rich white folk. Close the window. And I had our food, and I never paid him. 
And I like show my money, and I'm like, do you want this? He's like, oh my gosh, he opens the window. And then we continue the conversation, and went, and it went from there. And I was like, wow, like, listen, I know Florida's a swing state, and I know like it's, it's really important, but that just threw me off. Like, I was 20 years old. That was like my first election I ever voted, and this random guy asked me the window. I didn't even answer, and I'm like, uh. It's one of those things where, like, obviously this is a very tense moment. This is a tense moment right now. It's every four years, it seems to be a tense moment. And there's always just everyone's on edge and tightened, and it's just one of those things that we want to discuss. We want to approach. We want to talk about it civilly, not quickly in a drive-through window. I think that's kind of how what social media is. It's like a drive-through window. What do you believe? Oh, I don't like it. Um, and so we want to approach this differently, right? And this is one of those things, guys. We know, like, we as Americans almost have an unspoken social rule, which is like, don't talk about politics at dinner. And yet, somehow, every Thanksgiving dinner, we talk about politics. Um, and I've kind of learned. I've been in so many of these moments. I don't know about you if you've been in those. I've kind of learned to sit back and like just like enjoy the show. Like, oh, this is gonna be good. Like, it used to make me tense. Like, I used to like want to crawl out of my skin and just die. Now I'm like, I'll just get some popcorn and kind of enjoy the show right now. Um, but here's the thing. We're really, really bad at having good and healthy and civil conversations. Here's the thing. where We, we just want to get our point across, but we really don't want to listen. We're not so good at listening and saying, hey, I understand that's your belief. Help me understand that conviction of yours. How did you get to that place? And I really do want to process that with you. We're not so good at that. We usually want to corner someone and just go on off on a tangent versus going, hey, I want to hear your heart on that. Help me. Maybe I misunderstood. Can you express that to me more? And here's the thing. We as a church want to lead in this way. And we want to lead in the way of listening well, loving well. We want to lead in the way of not just assuming this person must be X, therefore they are bad, therefore they're against me. How do we truly listen? And how do we truly engage? And so this is our, our call as Christians to say, listen, we are going to fight for unity and not uniformity. And again, that does mean people will think differently and vote differently. And how do we love them in the process? And people have biblical convictions for why they might vote for the left or the right. And they can give you biblical reasons why they might vote. For the, and how do we not dismiss them? And how do we not shut them down? And I get it. I get that there's real policies and real issues that have real meaning and real weight. And we need to talk about those. And it's not like I want to downplay that. But there's a time to just listen and have a civil conversation and to say, I do want to understand your position from a biblical standpoint. Because remember, keep in mind, if you are here with us, this is a gospel-centered approach to politics. It really is probably a better way to say it's a gospel-centered approach to government. But this is our way. like, how do we approach this from the lens of scriptures? And what does Jesus say? And how do we live this out? And what does Paul say? What are, what are the commands we have? And though it's not exhaustive, let's take what we at least know. So here's what we're going to look at. All right, you guys ready? We're going to look at really three things today. Uh, in Romans 13, he, he really shows us government's role, our role, and love's role. And I want to break this down. What is government's role? What is our role? What does that look like? We'll spend more time on that. And what is love's role? We'll probably spend less time on number one, just so you know, and more time on number two and three, which I think is important right now. So government's role. Can we read again Romans 13 verse one, just to kind of get a feel what is government's role? Here's what Paul says. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists, the authorities resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Here's the first thought. Government is a God-ordained institution for the purpose of promoting good and restraining evil. Essentially what Paul is saying in these first four verses is that government is appointed by God. It's God-ordained. It's an institution for the purpose of promoting good and restraining evil. Now, let me just say this again. There's no way this can be exhaustive. Notice the Bible never actually talks about which form of government. It just recognizes that there are rulers who kind of govern the land and that we are to follow that. 
that can be different in different countries, obviously different styles. We might have a preference of what we like. We might see certain freedoms in certain countries and less freedoms than others and say, this is the better form. But the Bible doesn't specifically give a form. It just proves the idea of governing. Now, here's why I'm saying this. Let's start with the first idea. It is God-ordained. All right, government is God-ordained. I mean, verse 1, you can read it again. There's no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. They are appointed by God. They are God-ordained. Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, God-ordained. And I want us to hear that. We see this throughout scriptures in the book of Daniel. We see Nebuchadnezzar rise to power. We see God do that really because of Israel's disobedience. and He wanted to raise up who he wants to raise up, and he can tear down who he wants to tear down. Now, we obviously have a vote. Things are different now. We live in a you know, democracy where we have that privilege of voting. We'll talk about that. But here's the idea. Ultimately, even with that, we've got to steward that very well. But ultimately, God ordains it. Ultimately, God is in control. It's one of those things where I was just trying to process this thought of, God, how do I use my vote? How do I navigate this? How do we as a church come along our convictions, truly navigate this? But how do I be at peace with whatever the outcome is? How do I recognize that ultimately, whatever the outcome might look like, I can, I can rest in this verse where it says, it is God-appointed. This is one of those things where the author, and think about the time period he's writing and who he's writing to. We'll talk about that more. A much more wicked ruler than rulers that we see today. Uh, you could make an argument for that. This might be one of the most wicked rulers of all time, Caesar Nero. But here's the idea. There's this comfort and this hope that this is ordained by God. And it's, it's kind of mind-blowing the way he talks about that. And it's a very humbling thing for us when you go, God, wow, you're, you're that sovereign. You're that in control. Yes, I need to steward my vote, but at the same time, they're God-ordained. Now, that doesn't mean that God approves of their actions. doesn't mean God approves of their policies or what they're enacting. That's not the idea. He's approving everything they ever do. But God is also, according to verse 1, clearly said that no authority except from God, the authorities exist or are appointed by God. And, and there's a side of this where we, we do rest in that idea, that they're appointed by God. Now, I, wanna, I want us to like, just sit in this for a moment. Because I do know that, again, whatever happens this week, we can get so riled up or so excited. And I think we do lose credibility when we're overly excited, like the Messiah has come. Or we like it overly sad, like the devil has come. And we got to avoid <laughs> those temptations. We got to avoid the temptation as a church to celebrate uncontrollably or to weep uncontrollably and not realize that ultimately God is sovereign. There is some peace and healing that he's trying to bring in that, okay? I think that's good for us to know. Now, but what is their role? Now, you see in these verses, really it's to... First of all, that's for protection and punishment and for good. So I want to look at verse 4. Look what he, he says here. He says, for he is God's minister to you for good. So let's look at a couple things. So first he says, listen, the government bears the sword, man. They have the right to punish, to execute justice. This is a very interesting concept. You know, people will try to talk about just war, or some of those things. I don't want to fully get into that. But the idea is, you know, they have a right to govern or to execute justice in the land, to restrain evil, as he would put it. That is part of their, their, what they need to do as, as governing leaders. Now, here's what's interesting. In Romans 12, earlier, Paul said this. Paul tells the church, the body of Christ, listen, Romans 12, 19, uh, he said it this way, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Paul says, believers, don't avenge yourself. Someone's going to do you wrong. There will be injustices. You will suffer loss. People will do things that are unholy, ungodly, not good, wrong, sinful against the law to you. Do not seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Now, here's what's interesting. God says vengeance is mine, but he appoints people and he calls them avengers. Not like the superheroes, but he calls them that. He's like, hey, they're here to actually execute justice. So it's, here's the idea. He actually says twice they're God's ministers or God's servants. That's interesting. I don't know if we'd ever look at politicians and be like, those are God's servants. <laughs> That's what Paul calls them. He says they're God's servants, man. They're God's ministers. They're, they're there to execute judgment. They're there to restrain evil. 
That brings such a different perception than what I have of politicians. I don't view them as God's ministers. And he said, but you've you got to see them in this light. See them, what, what they're there to do. So justice is not going to be carried out possibly perfectly in this world. Yes, in the next. But you know what? They're there to be the hands and feet of that justice, execution of that, to execute the idea of justice and judgment in the world. But then he says this in verse 4. He goes, they're there for your good. For he is God's minister to you for good. So you see this. Here's the two big ideas. He says it's for punishment or justice, and it's also for good, the general welfare of people, countries that have done a good job of just taking, you know, taking good leadership of their country is just a general welfare of the people. You know, I'll just read a little piece from our constitution so you can see this right now. Uh, it says, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity or future generations. We do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. So even from our very beginning, it was, hey, we're here for the general good, the general welfare. Now, to what level, to what extent, or how to how to carry out, those are conversations worth having. But essentially, this is what Paul is saying. They're there for your good, for your general welfare, for to protect you, to keep you safe, locally, internationally. That's, that's part of the role. Now, here's why I'm bringing all this up. I want us to understand their role. This is not exhaustive, but it's good for us to kind of get this idea because it's not, that, it's not all bad. And we do pay taxes for a reason. <laughs> and there is benefit, and there's, there's safety, and there's help in that. And I'm bringing this up really because this is what every theologian points out. The overall tone in this is actually somewhat good. Here's Paul, who's in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman soldier, talking about how good they are. They're there for your good. Even though he's been accused falsely, beaten falsely, and he has a general overall healthy tone. That's a very unique mindset. And, and because I, I'm bringing this up because we don't see this overall tone in the way we speak about leaders. We don't see this overall tone speaking about, we don't call them God's ministers, God's servants, the terms he uses. And, and here's, there's like theories behind this. Paul, Paul is probably writing this, by the way, because he wants the gospel of Romans to go out into the world. And he, he wants the leaders to know, I'm not, you know, they probably read every letter he ever sent from prison, by the way, just like that happens in many countries still. They probably read the letters and he's trying to let them know, I'm not trying, here to start, trying to start a revolution. I'm here to advance Jesus and his kingdom. And he's also acknowledging the, the role that they play in the world. And this is such a beautiful thing. And I just think there's an overall tone that everyone acknowledges that this is a good thing. It has a good purpose, a good role to some extent. Now, here's why. I say this. You know, I understand that in our country, we have a history, and a very imperfect history, a very sinful history. I understand that there are some things that we've done that are absolutely disgusting. I'll also say this. I'm very thankful that we've tried to right some wrongs. I'm thankful for the civil war that we said, no, this is wrong. This is unjust. Slavery is not okay. We're going to fight this. And I'm thankful that we've tried to right some wrongs. And why I'm even bringing this up right now is because I just would love for us to almost just have a heart of appreciation. Here, here's what I'm bringing up. Guys, I'm thankful we have the freedom of speech. I'm the thank, thankful we have the freedom of religion. I'm thankful we have the freedom to gather. I'm thankful that we have due process. I'm thankful that there are certain freedoms that are introduced in the last couple hundred years that have never been introduced in thousands of years of human history, and yet we have certain freedoms. Like, thank you, Jesus. You know, I, I know it's easy to acknowledge the sinful past. I know it's easy to just, there's a lot of things even right now, currently, we need to legislate and we need to seek to, to bring justice, but there has to be at least some recognition of God. Thank you. You've been so faithful, so good to us. You know, I was joking about it with my wife this week because I don't remember the name of it. Uh, we got this employee retention credit. I don't know. So during COVID, businesses and nonprofits filed for something. I don't know. Our accountant did it. She's like, just sign this. And I did it. Anyways, we got a check from the U.S. Treasury, right? And it's for thousands of dollars because of what happened with COVID. And I don't know. I have no idea what it's for. My accountant just said sign it. I did. So here's like, I got this check in the mail. I go, oh my gosh. And I was like laughing. I'm like, Kimber, 
what other government in human history has given to the cause of the gospel? Like, they literally have given to the church. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, in my mind, I can't think of one country right now that's like, during this COVID crisis, they got a check for like, it's retention credit. Um, and I don't even know what that is. And I'm just laughing going like, Lord, thank, thank you. Even though, obviously, I want to recognize just the pain and I want to recognize the current moment, but I also want to recognize Paul, who's suffering at the hand of government officials, has this overall positive tone. And it's one of those things where it's like, Lord, help me understand that. Help, help us, Jesus, in this moment to go, yes, there's wickedness, yes, there's sin. Of course, it's, if it's led by man, it's going to be sinful, wicked, we've got to fight. But, the rea- but reality is, God, thank you for the freedoms that we, that we have that have not been very common throughout human history. And freedoms don't come very freely, and they came at a cost. And just thank you, Jesus, and produce like, within me a heart of gratefulness. Church, I think there should be a heart of gratefulness. We see government's role in here again, verse 4. It's good. It's for your good. So let's just talk about this. Government's role, protection, punishment, general safety, welfare, good. Now, let's look at this. Our role. What's our role? Like, how do we respond? And what does that look like for us? Because th- the way they were governed under a tyrant is different than how we're governed today. So what does that look like for us? Let's read verse 4. He says, for he, or verse 5, sorry, therefore you, you, that means you and me, must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. All right, here's the idea for us today. Followers of Jesus should be submissive citizens of government with ultimate allegiance to God. Followers of Jesus should be submissive citizens of government, but ultimate allegiance to God. He says this over again, be subject to them, be subject to them. You know, he's telling us this. Now, again, this is written under Caesar Nero, who was known for literally lighting Christians on fire in his garden during his parties and festivals. This guy was a wicked, brutal guy. He literally kicked his pregnant wife to death. He fed Jew and Christian alike to lions daily. I mean, a wicked human being. And Paul is saying, be subject to them. So if they can be subject to them, we can be subject here now. That the way of Jesus, it does look differently than the way of the world. That we do, we can also seek out justice and legislate and do things correctly in the right way, but we, we have this responsibility to do it with the sake of honor. Honor to whom is honor, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, taxes to whom taxes are due, and there's this idea that we do also participate so let's talk about this. Um, John Stott, who was one of the best theologians, who's written like, you know, basic Christianity and a lot of famous books on theology, he basically talked about the government's role with the church's role. What does it look like? Or the state's role with the church's role. And he tries to talk about the differences between them. So we're going to nerd out for a second, all right? Let's just do that really quick. John Stott talks about this. There's a theocracy. We've heard of this, a theocracy. The church, that's where the church controls the state. Think Vatican Maybe in Islam, it might be like Saudi Arabia or Iran, where there's religious law kind of dictating their political law. In theocracies, uh, you see the church control the, the state, and this never really turns out very well, or the heart of people aren't really turned towards God. It's not a great outcome. Then you see something called Erastianism. All right, this is where the state controls the church. Parts of old Europe, China, Russia, Cuba, where the state controls the, the church, tells the church what to do. I was talking to a Cuban pastor. We met down here uh, through a, another guy, and I was just asking about what's ministry like is in Cuba. 
And he explained how he's a house church. He's a part of many house churches. He's over those house churches, but how there's also government churches. And that's pri- there's primarily like a, you know, a church that's led by the government. And they tell you what to teach on, what you cannot teach on. If you teach on this, we'll pull funding, we'll kick you out of their building, there'll be consequences. Uh, we don't want that, right? That's where, again, the state controls the church. Then there's Constantinian. Uh, this is a compromise in which the state favors the church. The church makes accommodations with the state in order to preserve favored status. If you remember when uh, Constantine became emperor of Rome, you know, he became a Christian, declared it like, you know, Rome a Christian nation. But this is actually when you see a lot of paganism blend with Christianity. Because Christians were being favored, other religions were saying, hey, we're Christians. And this is when you see a lot of relics and idols and physical things like that being introduced to the church. And you see it kind of blend in now throughout our church history. It was not a good thing. Then John Stott talks about this. All right, last one. He says, partnership. The church and state can recognize that each have distinct God-given responsibilities, and they encourage and collaborate with each other in fulfillment of these roles. He says, this is more ideal. And he goes, there's, there's a sense of collaborating. You're distinct. You're separate. The church doesn't tell the, necessarily the state what to do. The state doesn't tell the church what to do. And he says, this is, there's a partnership. Now, David Platt, in his book, Seven Questions Every Christian Should Ask Before They Vote, he kind of talks about this in a different light. He goes, listen, we're governing citizens. Like, we're in a unique moment where we actually vote in who controls. We actually vote in power. You know, we are, uh, you know, a representative democracy, a government of the people, by the people, for the people. And it's interesting he talks about, because we, that means, that means we have some sort of governing responsibilities. That means we also have, like, we have responsibilities not just as a citizen, but as a governing citizen, which will look different. And he introduces this idea biblically, he's saying, here's some concepts for us, our role to carry out for the good, for the justice of the people, and here's what he says. So I'll put this up here, listen. Our role is this, how do we reflect God's justice or just governance by working to promote good, punish evil, and protect people from harm? We subject ourselves to and support government for the flourishing of all people. Do justice, that which is right for all people, as exemplified in the character of God and expressed in the word of God. Pray and work for the welfare of the nation in which we live. Love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. Steward any responsibility we have in governance for the good of all people affected by our government. And he's just attaching verse to this saying, listen, you're not just citizens, but you're governing citizens. There's this partnership. We want to work together for the good of the people. How do we not just think of ourselves in this moment? How do we think of others in this moment? How do we as the church care about other people's needs above our own needs? And there's that sense of weight and responsibility to this. So here's what he says. Here's your role. He says, submit and pay taxes. No one really loves those two words, uh, submit or pay taxes. No one really loves that. But here's what he's playing off of, and many people think this is what he's doing. He's pointing back to what Jesus said in Mark 12. And Jesus kind of really introduces this idea of how we carry ourselves in this world of religion and governing. So I want you to turn to Mark 12. So I want you to see what, what this position Jesus was in and what he said and what he did. So Mark chapter 12, why don't you turn there really quick. Mark chapter 12. And listen to this moment or this position that Jesus was put in by others around him. Mark 12 verse 13. It says this, Then they came, or they sent to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, to catch him in his words. Verse 14. When they had come, they said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and you care about no one, for you do not regard the person or men, but you teach the way of God in truth. So, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? <laughs> but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image 
An inscription is this. They had said to him, uh, Caesar's. Jesus, said to, Jesus answered and said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. I love this. Here's the Herodians and the Pharisees working together. The Herodians working for the government. Uh, they were more, you could say, liberal in the sense of the pagan culture that Rome bring. And then you have the Pharisees who are incredibly religious. And they're working together. They hate each other. And now they're coming together because they hate Jesus even more. All right, so like the left and the right come together basically and say, Jesus, are you for us? We're going to pay taxes. Are you for the Herodians? Or are you for the people? What are you for, Jesus? And they're basically giving him like two options. And I love how Jesus is just so discerning. He goes, why do you test me? That word test is the same word that uh, is used in, in when Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. It's like this testing, this temptation. Like, why do you test me? And he goes, bring me a denarius. And I love that, by the way. It's like Jesus didn't even have a denarius. He didn't even have money on him. He's like, uh, show me. Do you have a denarius on you? A denarius was a day's worth of wage. Now, here's the thing. A denarius was also, an, uh, that was what it cost to pay the imperial tax. The imperial tax was basically what paid the Roman soldiers to occupy Jerusalem. So they're basically paying for their own slavery. I want you to understand how important this is to them. They're paying to be enslaved. They hated, the, they hated this imperial tax. They hated the idea of the denarius, a day's worth of wages, going to paying for their enslavement. I mean, I mean, this was like a, they're both on edge here. The Herodians, is he going to say, he better say, pay it. Then you have the Pharisees, like, is he going to be for the people? Is, he, is Jesus here to start a revolution? What's he here to do? And, and Jesus goes, whose inscription's on this? And I don't know why, I just, I love that he just does this by just asking questions. Who's on this? Like, and they're like, oh, it's Caesar, uh, the most famous man in the world, <laughs> in their mind. And like, oh, it's Caesar. And he goes, okay. Well, the image of Caesar's on this. He goes, so render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Now, here's why this is so profound. The image of Caesar was stamped on that coin. So he goes, well, it's Caesar's image. Give Caesar what's his. But the image of God is stamped on you, so render to God the things that are God's. So the image of Caesar is stamped on that coin, but guess whose image is stamped on us? We're a Mago Dei. We're made in God's image. God's image is stamped on us. And he goes, so give your life to God. Give to God the things that are God's. So Jesus doesn't really do, yeah, pay the tax, or no, don't pay the tax. He doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. He just has this beautiful, he, he leads them with questions, then he has this beautiful response and saying, you know what, we are going to engage, but you know what, like we're going to engage with the political realm, you're going to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but you know we're also part of something much bigger and greater. That you and I are called to something much bigger and greater. And, and there's so much we, we see here. Jesus is essentially saying, you know, it's, it's important to engage with politics because you're rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but you know what, though it's important, it's not ultimate. Though it might be important, it's not ultimate. You see, I, here's the idea for us church today, right now, where we're at. We got to understand that obviously politics in this discussion is important. There are real issues, real topics, real things, good things, evil things that are on ballots. We got to we got to be discerning. We really do. But we also got to understand where it goes in its place, and it's not ultimate. It's not God. Politics is not everything. That at the end of the day, we're looking to Jesus. That at the end of the day, it's very important what we what we do with our vote, how we use it, how we steward it. But we cannot deceive ourselves into thinking for a second that this is the ultimate thing. That this is, this is the thing that will tr bring true healing, health, prosperity. Whatever you want to say, this is not the ultimate thing. And Jesus put it in the rightful place. And I, I say this because this is so important. Like, we do got to steward this well. Because you do think about it. There, there still would be slavery if we didn't engage in politics. We have to engage. There still would be redlining if we didn't engage. There's certain things that would still be going on if we didn't engage. We have to engage. We must engage. But even though as we engage, listen, render to God the things that are God's. Ultimately, God's image is stamped on you. Ultimately, you have another citizenship. That, there, that there's something greater that we're a part of. That we want to be part of something much greater in this moment. So here's the question, really, is what he's asking. Who has your heart? Who has my heart? Who has your allegiance? 
Like, who truly has your allegiance in your heart? Now, and, and what are you motivated by? And what, what do you wake up and what excites you? What are you passionate about? And is it the things of Caesar or is it the things of God? Like, what excites you? Is it the things of the government and politics? Is that what your mission is every day to convert people to your side? Or is your mission to convert people to Jesus? And what is the thing that has your heart and your ultimate allegiance? Again, one pastor said this. He said, even if, listen, even if we lose every freedom and protection we have as followers of Jesus in the United States, and even if our government were to become a completely totalitarian regime, we could still live an abundant life as long as we didn't look to political leaders, platforms, or policies for our ultimate security and satisfaction. We can still have hope, peace, joy, and confidence regardless of what happens in our government. As long as we look to Jesus alone for these things and all of our hope hinges on him, we can still have hope as long as we look to Jesus. The idea is, I think, we're, I think right now, you know, Karl Marx said what? He said religion is the opioid of the people. I really do think it's, it's politics right now. I think politics is what we're addicted to. Politics is what I see people excited to talk about, wake up, and to live for, and engage in, and call people out, and demean this. And I think it's like, that's the new opioid. That's the new thing where people are like literally craving and addicted to. We're like addicts. And I really think the Lord's saying, not so for us. Render to God the things that are God's. We, we need to engage absolutely. And we're told to absolutely. But you know what? This, this good thing is not going to become an ultimate thing. It's not going to take the place of God or affection or love. Like, do you feel like right now you have more in common with another follower of Jesus? Or do you feel like you have more in common with the same person who might vote like you, but they're not a follower of Jesus? And the idea is we should have more in common man, with another follower of Jesus than someone else who might vote like us, but is not. And I've just heard too many comments, you guys. There's too many right now friendships being lost over politics. There's kids not talking to parents over politics. There's literally relationships being lost by who people are voting for, and let it not be so. It can't be among us. It just can't. You know, again, if we want a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church, that means you'll have a multi-voting party system church. And I've, I've heard people say, I want to go to church where everyone votes like me. No, we, we cannot ever, like, think that way, dream that way. Going, God, let there be just a multitude of diversity, and yet we're all going worthy as the lamb. We're all going, I'm not for a donkey. I'm not for an elephant. I'm for the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. I'm for the king of kings and lord of lords. That's who I'm for. The whole idea of even saying Jesus is Lord in Philippians and this idea that was introduced, there was a common saying among the Romans if Caesar were to walk in the room, they'd say Caesar is Lord. And then the Bible introduces this idea of Jesus is Lord. And, and that was like so heretical to the Romans. That's worthy of death. The idea for us, you guys, we're saying Jesus is Lord. This is a political term. He's the one on the throne. He's the ruler. He's the king of all kings. And again, yes, we engage. We must engage. We're actually commanded. And here's one of the things that actually I think we might downplay. We're told to engage through prayer. And I do wonder, what if we as a church put more time into prayer for politics than we did for posting on social media about politics? Like, what if we truly put more time into praying for the leaders currently in office or who will be in office than we did just degrading them or worshiping them? What if we prayed actually more? Paul in, in, Philippians, or in 1 Timothy 2, he said it this way. Listen, please listen to this. He says, first of all then, I urge you, I beg you, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Do you see Paul's goal here? Paul is saying, pray for kings and people in high positions. Why? So that all people might be saved. What an interesting thought. Paul's idea of praying for political leaders was that people could be saved. 
No, last night I did this. I, I was praying for Biden, Harris, Trump, Pence. I was just praying for them by name. Like, Lord, be with them. Lord, intervene. God, I ask that you just send believers into their lives who love you. And just praying specifically, you know, we're told to do that. Pray for the kings, people in high positions. And then this thought of flip, uh, first something to hit me, it's like, and then pray that all men might be saved. And my prayer really changed. I'm like, Lord, put in office who will lead to more men being saved. Like, what if we actually prayed in a way where we're like, Lord, my goal is to see more people get saved. My goal is to see more people called out of light, darkness into his marvelous light. My goal is to see more people follow Jesus, love Jesus, to preach Jesus. Guys, I want to equip you for Jesus' ministry. I have this call, we have this call in Ephesians 4, hey, elders, leaders, pastors, teachers, to equip the body of Christ for the work of the ministry, and that work of the ministry is reconciliation to God. That ultimately, you guys, I want to equip you not to be better, vote for my party, I want to equip you better, um, follow my Jesus. And so this is one of those things that it might be frustrating, it might challenge both, it might say, are we overemphasizing, maybe we're underemphasizing, but are we overemphasizing something that might be in the way of the gospel? I want to be a church that fights for the gospel, that first and foremost, this is what we're known for, that we're just know we're, we're praying. So I actually, we're going to close our service in a little bit. When we do that, we're going to pray for our leaders and pray for leaders in high positions and blessings over them and with thanksgiving over them. And, and we truly want to play, pray in this way because I really think if we spent less time posting and arguing and more time praying, would there be more change? It really just kind of shows, do you believe in the power of prayer or do you not? I, I really wonder just what the state of prayer has been like for our leaders versus just the, the state of just arguing and demeaning. So here's the thing. What is our role? We engage, absolutely. You know, there's, there's, this, there's this thing where you can be apolitical or you can be all political. Apolitical is kind of where you withdraw and you go, well, everyone's corrupt, everyone's evil, I don't even want to get involved. I would encourage you not to be apolitical. I'd also encourage you not to be all political, where politics is a solution to literally everything in your life. I would encourage you not to be both. Here's the problem. The church has gotten in big, big trouble historically when we've been apolitical and when we've been all political. The church in South Africa, when it's apolitical, here's the idea. During the apartheid, the church said, we're not going to engage. Man, this is like a, this is a church and state thing. In their mind, they're going, we're not going to engage on civil liberties and racial tension. We're not going to engage on that because, you know, we don't want the church to be identified with politics, so they, they disengaged. That was apolitical. Then the church in Germany became all political. The church in Germany got in bed, in a sense, with the Nazi party. And the church in Germany, the Lutheran church, in many ways accepted the Nazi beliefs, the nationalism, and all of that, and it led to terrible, terrible destruction and murder on that continent. And you see the church in South Africa disengage. You see the church in Germany over-engage and become overly, overly political, where they're literally known for a certain party and that party only. And here's the thing. We see, though, Christians throughout history do something different. We see William Wilberforce, a wealthy man in Great Britain in the 1800s, give up his land, give up money, sell, help legislate, help change laws to abolish slavery in the UK. Unbelievable. We see Martin Luther King Jr. through the gospel, through scriptures, engage with the civil liberties and say, we need to bring honor, we need to bring scriptures into this conversation. There's a way to do it with a sense of redemption. We don't want to be apolitical where we back away and withdraw and like we should be speaking up. We want to become all political. We're only known for one thing or we only are known for one policy. We're only known for one side and then we're also missing the point. But how can we engage with this? What's just is just. What's evil is evil. We're to call it out. We're to engage where we need to engage. And we see, we've seen that and we can do that. We can do that again. The point is we should start with prayer. The point is we should seek wisdom and use discernment. So we see government's role. We see our role. But let's look at love's role. All right, love's role. Number three. You guys with me? You guys all right? Is everyone okay? Okay. Love's rule. Verse 8. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, all are summed up in the same, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Understand this, you guys. This is not a different thought. 
he was just talking about politics and government and how you live and how I live and how the government rules and reigns. And then he introduces love. It's not like it's a completely different thing. He's saying, and lead with love. Love fulfills the law. Here's the idea. Laws can create policy or policies can create laws. And the idea is that will govern and, and change the way we live. It might change your behavior. Laws might, you know, alter behavior. Don't murder or you will go to prison. Okay, I won't murder. All right, laws can change behavior, but the law can never change the heart. This is a theme Paul constantly talked about, which is laws might have, you know, behavior modification benefits, but law does not lead to inward transformation. And, and this is what Paul's saying. Love is so much better. Why? Because love can actually change someone's desire in their heart. Not just like, oh, I'm not going to murder, but I now love you. Love fulfills the law. He goes, you know, not bearing false witness, not coveting, not stealing, none of the, he goes, you know, love fulfills it. Love is the summary. If you love God and love people, you're not going to break the other commands. You know, if you love God and love people, you're not going to break the laws of our land. Like, if there's truly this love, love fulfills it all. And again, love is about this internal transformation more than just change your patterns, change your behaviors. And the summary of this is just saying, we need to have love above all. And, and church, this is where my heart is, honestly, this is why I want to talk about this today. The thing that kind of has haunted me is, is our church right now in this moment more frustrated that I haven't said something they want me to say or have said some things they didn't want me to say or are we more encouraged by the fact that we're pressing into Jesus and love? So meaning this, here's the, here's the, the comment. Jesus' greatest concern in this election is not its outcome, but how his church loves. And I really believe that. His greatest concern is not who's in the office next, but have we loved in the process? What if we got our person or didn't get our person, but yet the whole time we were not loving? The whole time we were incredibly dishonoring, incredibly dismeaning, never said, I want to listen, didn't just assume someone else's position. We didn't just invite them into our home and fed them and showed hospitality to them and engage with them. The idea is, church, like, I've had people, again, tell me, I don't want to be a part where this would happen. I, I want to see a church where we're going to see all, all people come together and say, but you know what, Jesus unites us far more. Jesus is what brings us together far more, and the, like, we'll be known for this. One pastor said it this way, and I just want to read this to you. He says, if you think that a follower of Jesus has to be a Republican or has to be a Democrat in order to be a Christian, then you have confused a political party with the kingdom of Christ, and you're in danger of being a pawn and not a disciple. And I, and I really do think that we have to understand that. If you say, you, there's, I've seen friends who I love dearly, both, both post the similar but the exact opposite thing. How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus and vote for Trump? How can you call yourself a follower of Jesus and vote for Biden? And I go, what are you doing? Is salvation now based on who you vote for? Like, we got to understand soteriology, the study of salvation is not based off who I vote for or who I don't for. It's based off the finished work of Jesus. And church, let us not get this confused for a moment. That we're now taking the body of Christ and we're saying, I have no need of you. Because here's my fear in all of this. If you say you love God who you've never seen and hate your brother who, who you have seen, then you are a liar and the truth is not in you. John's words, you cannot say you love God and hate your brother. And yet I'm just seeing so much hatred and so much this, this tenseness that is just so unlike Jesus. And, and God right now, I believe, is just calling us to a higher standard. Let it not be so among us. Someone will vote differently than you. Bless them, love them, serve them, seek them out, listen to them. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It does something for me where I go, oh, Lord, I don't like this idea. I don't like this belief, this conviction they have. But just like listen and love them very well. Now, let me just be really clear too. It's okay to have convictions. Have biblical convictions. I was reading something. I think Barna Research said that the, the next generation after us, Gen Z or whatever, 6% of who call themselves Christians actually read their Bible on a continual basis. Here's what that means. Um, we have a biblically illiterate generation. 
And I, and I think that we need to get, understand the Word, read the Word, be in the Word, understand that so we can have good convictions. So if we hear something from the world, we know how to navigate. That's not from Jesus. That's the way of the world. Like, our, we're going to have convictions, you guys. It's okay. Absolutely. Listen, we should be passionate about saving the unborn. Absolutely. We should be passionate about the immigrant. Absolutely. We should be passionate about criminal reform. Absolutely. It, we should have convictions. And it might look like, what does this conviction come from? What does this conviction come from? And it might not stem from the same place, but we, we should absolutely but become biblically literate. Like be in the word, know the word, know how to navigate that. Have this heavenly wisdom that comes from above. You can never have that if you don't know the word. So I'd say like get immersed in the word. Understand, wrestle with it. Talk to older, mature believers and say, help me understand how to process this. I'm feeling this way. My friends say this. And just process it with others out loud. Say, you've been walking with Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years. Help me, help me understand this and process it with them. And, and be just open and listen and explore. And I would say, like, let us press into this. Here's what I'm thinking of right now. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes, man, the church is a city on a hill. The church is the salt of the earth. And if the church has lost its saltiness, it's good for nothing. Just go out and throw it on the ground. I don't want to lose our saltiness. I want to have convictions. I want to be a city on the hill. I want to be different. I want it to stand out. And I really do think we have to, like, right now in this moment, there's two thoughts. We need a prophetic presence and a prophetic distance. And what do I mean by that? And a prophetic presence means we should speak out against sin. Racism is sinful and wrong. Abortion is sinful and wrong. You know, the way we've talked about immigrants and treated immigrants is wrong. We, we should call sin, sin, and not be afraid of that. But we also need a prophetic distance, meaning that there might be a point in time we say, you know what, this loyalty or blind loyalty to a party, maybe we need to step back a little bit and not just be known as Christians are fill in the blank, but maybe we should be known Christians are followers of Jesus. Maybe our primary identity can be known for our love for Jesus and our love for his word. And I'd say, man, let's be known and identified as that. So we do need a prophetic presence. We need a prophetic distance. And I, I just want to share this thought. Um, Romans 14 talks about this, this argument in the church. Can I eat meat? Can I not eat meat? They sacrifice to demons. Don't you know you're eating meat? Sacrifice to demons. How dare you participate in demon worship? And I was like, I'm just eating meat. It's not participating in demon worship. And there's this battle going on. And Paul summarizes this great tension and says, listen, whatever's not from faith is sin. Some of you can eat meat in faith. Eat meat in faith. Some of you can't eat meat in faith. Don't eat meat. Fa- don't eat meat then. Whatever's not from faith is sin. And I would say, listen, there's a side of this where I want you to explore those convictions and, and have that dialogue and get into those conversations. Like, go, go, okay, God, this is a topic, a foreign policy. Uh, well, I don't know, what does your word say? Oh, not a lot of clarity there. And I'd say, but like, keep seeking that out. So in summary, David Platt takes this book, his seven questions every believer should ask before they vote, and here's what he, he says. We need to have biblical clarity and practical consequences. Biblical clarity and practical consequences. I would actually encourage you to do this. Get biblical clarity on things. Write out some of the seven or eight or nine important topics. And then, talk, and then think through the practical consequences. Will my vote make a change? If it does make a change, how will it make a change? How will it not make a change? And he talks about biblical, again, biblical clarity and practical consequences. And we'll just like, throw this up if you want to do this. He puts this in his book, but it's like a little quadrant, right? You have biblical clarity and you have, uh, you have the consequences, the practical consequences. And he basically says, you know, put them in the top right corner. If you look in here, he goes, that is where it's, there's biblical clarity, abortion, murder, sinful, wrong, okay. Practical consequences, maybe my vote does have a difference. Maybe I want funding to go somewhere different. Okay, top right. Maybe there's something else where you go, oh, this biblical conviction, I don't know actually. Where would I put foreign policy? I don't know, maybe it's more in the bottom left. Maybe I don't have much of a biblical conviction. Maybe there's practical consequences. Maybe it's the bottom right because there will be extreme consequences. It's just one of those things where I actually did this just to like navigate some feelings. I've, I'm just trying to understand or navigate some truths or topics I've been trying to process. And maybe this is helpful. So I'll put this up here too. He kind of listed some. Whether that's domestic policy, that's education, criminal justice, 
economic issues, environmental issues, foreign policy, national security, healthcare issues, immigration issues, personal care to morality issues, uh, social issues, sexuality, marriage, abortion, religious liberty. He goes, just write some of these things out. And I'm only saying this to you guys because maybe you've never truly spent time working this out. The gospel of Jesus affects and plays into every area of my life. The goodness of God plays into every area of my life. And maybe I just need to sit down, pray, find scripture for, on those topics, find out where I get biblical clarity. This is really clear. This seems to be less clear. And, and just try this. And, just, and then write, okay, well, which candidate or which party might better address these issues that I view in the top right corner, which was maybe not so much. And just tr try that. It was just, a, this is a kind of a, a way he left the church saying, hey, church, spend some time working out your own salvation with fear and trembling and the way this might work out and play into your life. Spend some time processing this with other believers. Ask them, invite them into it. Say, listen, I'm not asking this because I, I want to find out where you are. I'm asking this because I want to learn and grow and spend some time doing this. So here's what we're going to end with. And I just want to just throw these things out to you guys. Some reminders. Please remember this. First and foremost, our primary identity and allegiance is to Jesus and his church. Please hear that. Our primary identity and allegiance is to Jesus and his church. That's, that's, that's our primary allegiance. I pledge allegiance to Jesus and his church. Uh, the church should never sell out to power. When the church has gotten in bed with certain parties, you've seen it hurt the gospel in the name of Jesus. And it's made the other generations underneath it bitter and resentful. And it's put a wedge. And so we want to have loyalty ultimately to Jesus. Listen, read your Bible, develop convictions, vote your conscience, trust God. <laughs> read your Bible. Develop convictions. Vote out of faith like Romans 14. Trust God. I, I love this. When you drop in your ballot, maybe you've already done that, but if, when you drop in your ballot, just go, Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Drop it in. <laughs> Pray a little prayer in that moment. You've done it. You've voted your convictions, all that stuff, but you're going, Jesus, your kingdom come. My hope is in you. My hope is not in this when I'm dropping off. My hope is in you. Um, listen, Jesus' greatest desire during this election is that we would love one another. If at the end of this you're still mad at me, I'd say I'd challenge you to love. Love. To love deeply. To love dearly. To love sacrificially love. Uh, listen, Jesus ultimately is our sovereign king. At the end of the day, Jesus is still king of kings and lord of lords, and there is hope and meaning in this. And listen, we're going to end now with praying for our leaders and praying over what we discussed, but here's what I want to do. I want to ask some more like self-reflective questions because I want the Holy Spirit to kind of just search you and know you, kind of like Psalm 139, like, Lord, search me, know me. So would you do this? We're going to worship, but why don't you bow your head, close your eyes. I'm going to ask you questions that I want you to ask, like repeat the question in your heart, talk it over with the Lord, and basically there'll be like some am I questions. All right, so do this. Please do this. This is Psalm 139 moment of, Lord, search me, know me. Where have I gone off? Where is their pride? Where is their self-righteousness? Where am I embracing an ideology that is not from you, that is of the world? God, search me, know me. So close your eyes, bow your head, and really quick, listen to this. Some questions. Let me just ask you again. Do you feel that you have more in common with people who share your faith or share your politics, but not your faith? If you do, I would really challenge that. Body, the body of Christ will be very diverse. And there will be people here who will vote differently. But let me tell you, you have way more in common with them than you do with someone who votes the same way as you. But they're not a believer. And I just want you to give that to the Lord. Lord, they're not my enemy. Help me to love them. Here's another question. Has your allegiance, your allegiance to a party or candidate created blind spots? Has your allegiance right now to a specific party, to a specific person, has it created blind spots? And that leads to the next question. What good can you recognize in the other party? Maybe you never spent time just thinking about, you know what, this is what the party offers, and this is something I want to thank Jesus for. There's good here. 
Now, it doesn't mean, again, there's not sinful things there, but we, we spend a lot of time on that. My, my hope is as you do this, it will develop again an understanding for someone else who does think different. And here's one more. Has your love and respect for others, for other believers, faded during this election season? Has your love and respect for other believers faded during this election season? Have you unfriended someone? Have you unfollowed someone? Have you blocked someone? Have you got to the place where you're like, I don't ever want to see them or hear from them again? And just maybe there's just, it's, it's now crossed the line of just, it's hatred, it's, it's bitterness, it's contempt. It's something in your heart where Jesus is wanting to address and saying, that person I love dearly, that was your friend. You're dividing over this. You're ending over this. They're part of the body of Christ. They're part of your family. I would say this, maybe Jesus wants you to reconcile with your parents. Maybe Jesus wants you to reconcile with some friends. Maybe there's some people you've cut out of your life because of their beliefs and Jesus is saying, go to them, love them. Do we not understand that Jesus obviously highly disagreed with the woman caught in adultery, but he still loved her? That Jesus obviously highly disagreed with the Pharisees of his day, but he still gave them time and spent time talking to them at night. My, my point is you can highly disagree and even recognize the sinful tendencies in a person, but still seek out community and friendship and fellowship with that person. Because the purpose is we want to see all men be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. So church, we're going to take some time, pray over this, pray over our leaders, pray over this moment. God, heal our land. Let Jesus reclaim the rightful place in Christians' lives, in our lives, that our goal is not primarily to make this a Christian nation, but to make disciples of all nations. That absolutely I want this to be a Christian nation, but we cannot put that over making disciples of all nations. That's the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. That we must also seek out the other, seek out the person who's different, and ultimately saying, listen, the goal here is not for you to think like I think or vote like I think. The goal for you is to know Jesus, follow Jesus, make Jesus known. His kingdom come, his will be done. Jesus, remove the heart idols, remove the bitterness in my life right now and give some time for the Lord to do that. I would just pray and I ask respectfully and humbly that you would just kind of give your heart to the Lord in this moment and say, God, where is there still bitterness? Where is there still just resentment right now? I'm frustrated by this message. This is not what I wanted to hear. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 put me back on the throne of your life. And I would say, let's give him time to do that. So pray, pray for your leaders, pray for this moment, ask for Jesus for healing, for God to move. And listen, we're gonna worship this. So let me pray it now. Father, we thank you how we need you in this moment. How God, this is a moment where I believe the enemy is thrilled to see the church divided, but yet Jesus, how beautiful and how pleasant is it for us to dwell in unity, and that is our desire. That Jesus, though we might disagree, we can still love above all. We can still pray for the same kingdom to come, for your will to be done. But that is our desire, that is our longing. So Jesus, be in this place, move. Bring clarity, bring healing, bring love, let us love and fulfill the law. Who cares if we voted right but didn't love in the process? Help us love Jesus like you have loved. And we ask this in your precious name. Amen.